In this episode, we consider how innovation and entrepreneurship can serve as catalysts for economic development, ultimately advancing crucial policy initiatives. These conversations showcase Atlanta's leadership in building entrepreneurial ecosystems and the extraordinary men and women who lead them. Why Atlanta explores entrepreneurship in the city of Atlanta through the lens of some of our nation's most preeminent thought leaders, showcasing successes, opportunities, and that special sauce that makes Atlanta a top destination for female founders and entrepreneurs. Our first guest is Roderick Miller, President and CEO of the Miami-Dade Beacon Council. Roderick is a seasoned economic developer known for his deep expertise in urban recovery, trade and foreign investment, strategic planning, and project finance. He has emerged as one of the foremost economic development leaders in the country, respected globally for his ability to maneuver an extraordinarily complex political and business environments and craft strategies and structured deals to provide long-term value to communities and investors. His skills as a salesman, negotiator, policy expert, and corporate strategist have been honed in over 10 countries. Previously, Miller served as the founding president and CEO of the New Orleans Business Alliance, president and CEO of the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation, and CEO of Invest Puerto Rico. Miller holds a master's in public policy from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and a Bachelor of Science degree in international business from St. Augustine's College. Roderick's received numerous accolades, including Ebony's 30 Under 30, Phoenix Business Journal's Top 40 Under 40, Top 100 Tech Influencers and Silicon Bayou Young Economic Developer of the Year as well as numerous other accolades and titles. In my conversation with Roderick, we discuss how he's become a notable change agent in economic development by leveraging culture to identify creative solutions to big problems. What we found is that women drive culture, and by extension, we drive economic development. We set the tone. start with the big broad question on how you see innovation and entrepreneurship as a driver for economic growth. And I'll just let you jump in and tell me your thoughts on that. One of the things that's at the core of what attracted me to these kinds of markets is that I firmly believe that that this idea of when we look at markets that have been challenged, post-industrial city, post-industrial markets, and markets that are going through tremendous turmoil. One of the best times to make big decisions that really impact the future of those economies is at those points, because there's probably never a greater will to actually do things dramatically different. And of course, we recognize that the world is at a tipping point and inflection post-COVID, acceleration of new technologies, everything from AI to green tech to you name it, that now there's this kind of gigantic shift happening on a global scale. And unfortunately, U.S. competitiveness has been waning for decades in terms of our ability to to demonstrate a kind of a distinguished value vis-a-vis other global markets, whether you look at the amount of investment that these other markets are making, have made historically in infrastructure and R&D from a government level, ours has been declining since the 1950s, or whether you're looking at kind of the performance in terms of talent. And so now we recognize that the most important driver of investment decisions by companies is access to really smart, capable. And so if you think about economies in general, innovation and entrepreneurship is really where disruption occurs. And so when you look at wages in the innovation and entrepreneurship spaces, you've got a broader gamut, but overall higher quality wages over time because of the disruption and the fact that there's something that's being done differently to provide a different or distinct value. When you look at the markets where I've worked, those markets have not only because of the challenges they've been through in a position where they're willing to make some different decisions, I also think I bring an investment thesis that when you look at the people, primarily people of color in many of these markets, they've been looked at as a, as a, a deficit. People have been looked at as deficits. Uh, and when you t- look at people's deficits, your approach to how you build the economy is very different than when you look at people as assets. And at the core of looking at people as assets is this capacity for people to be productive, which is a workforce development play. 
but also this capacity for people to be able to create new value and create wealth, which is an entrepreneurship play. So I would argue that while in economic development, historically, it's been about attracting jobs that makes the big headlines, attracting new jobs and high quality wages. And that's vitally important. I would offer that equally important, if not more so important, is the ability to create new employment through entrepreneurship, through innovation in those markets. And a lot of the work everywhere I've gone has been probably an interesting split of work between the traditional attraction of companies, retention of companies, and as well as the creation and launch of new ventures, because it's much more likely, even though still a needle in a haystack, it's much more likely for you to be able to grow a Google there in Atlanta because the founders have ties to that market because of the entrepreneurial ecosystem than it is to attract a Google-type company to a market when everybody's competing for that same company. So if you can get in front of these entrepreneurs, in front of these innovators and disruptors on the front end of that scale, then your value is going to be much greater and your capacity to be able to actually grow those companies in your market will be much greater than waiting until one of those companies actually grows to that scale and attracting to your market. Yeah, you know, that that's so interesting to me. I And I want to talk about that a little bit more. I've got a colleague who feels very strongly in some of these markets like in Alabama or Mississippi or the Carolinas that haven't tapped into the, their full potential with economic development for the full community. That's going to change because an entrepreneur is going to come back to that that city or that culture and grow that business as opposed to attracting, say, a Google or an Amazon. It's going to come from within, is what he was saying. But I did pick up off of that thesis. I read a, an interview you said people in these markets and the assets of these markets are largely seen as deficits when they should actually be seen as selling points. So I wanted to hear your take on that as it pertains to women. So we talk about economic inclusion a lot, and economic inclusion has become the buzzword of the last few years, and particularly focused around people of color, which is great and absolutely needed. But that inclusivity conversation does definitely need to be much larger. We know that companies led by women perform on average much, much better than companies led by men in terms of just objective growth year over year. However, we also know that when it's time to go to valuation, a company led by women may be valued at under a million bucks and companies led by men on average are, I think, is in the five to $6 million range. And so I think there is a real need not only to have this focus on trying to ensure that more women have access to, to, the, to the tools to launch and scale businesses, but also that they have access to the entire suite of what they need, not only to launch their business, but to grow their business and to scale their business. And I think there has to be some intentionality around that. Yes, entrepreneurship comes from within, but the entrepreneurship from within never actually can take off unless there is a coordinated, consistent, and clear effort to build an ecosystem to support those sorts of entrepreneurs, which is why I think the work that you're doing is so important, because there has to be intentionality about saying, yes, this is a segment of the population that adds a distinct value and also has a distinct perspective as it relates to innovation and disruption. And so providing targeted, focused skills to say, yes, women have to play a key role in driving the economy and have to have access to the tools, the suites, and all those things that, that men entrepreneurs have, but with the clarity that there has to be intentionality around supporting women. That bias always creeps in when ecosystem partners are doing work, and that's human nature. So I think intentionality around building an ecosystem to support women entrepreneurs has to be at the core of what organizations think about if they want women entrepreneurs to thrive in their markets. Roger, how do you, as a professional, as someone who's really, you've really achieved tremendous success in your career to date, but how do you see that tension that happens between policy and innovation? Even with my program, it's specific to women. And what we don't want to do is come across as an organization that excludes part of the community, but we want to be inclusive of the community. And so it makes sense to be intentional about this program, right? But it could be flipped the other way. And that, it feels to me like a natural example of that tension between policy and innovation, which I ultimately think is good, but I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that and how to navigate. That. It's interesting that you mentioned that. So there are, a few, there are a few things that jump out. One is, I think, no disrespect to you or anyone, I think the reality of it is the numbers are very clear. There has historically been an intentional and a deliberate effort to exclude certain groups from, from full economic participation, and that includes women. And I think having that honest conversation to say, let's really be honest here. We've got a history of centuries of exclusion to actually recognize the, not only the percentage of the population that women represent, but, but the performance of their companies 
a lot of times in this economic development work, we're very intentional about focusing on targeted sectors. We focus on these targeted sectors because we realize that there is a distinct value there. There is a distinct value in focusing on information technology or advanced manufacturing or what have you, because we believe that the caliber of the jobs, the caliber of the opportunity, the caliber of the wealth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's going to be created because of the scale of those sectors makes sense to have that intentionality. And I would argue that the same is true of, of groups that have been excluded. Historically, they represent latent capacity in the marketplace. So this idea that tension oftentimes around the reverse discrimination or what have you is oftentimes the byproduct of a mentality that there's only a limited pie. And what I believe you're arguing, or at least what I'm arguing, is that there is a capacity to make the pie bigger if there is greater participation and and economic participation by, by women. So I think that's a very true reality. And I think public policy has played a key role in, in creating some of the barriers to access and public policy should play a key role in creating some of the, the paths to a new and better world. And then lastly, I think I would mention that thinking in, in particular about women and the policy tension, one of the biggest challenges is that elected officials can only see about two to three inches in front of their face because they're always concerned about re-election and the types of investments, the types of work that has to be done in order to create sustainable, scalable growth is long-term work. So I think many times in creating these ecosystems and creating quality policy to foment the growth of women-owned businesses is a challenge. The value is long-term, even though there's short-term value, the big value is long-term, how to create the case so that elected leaders can actually understand that this short-term and this near-term decision will impact the next 10, 15, 20 years of their market. Roger, there's a point that you brought up a little earlier in our conversation that I'd like to readdress and perhaps get your thoughts on, particularly because it it touches on this concept of time and that good things do take time and that it takes you just as long to get out of a situation as it took to get into a situation. And I don't think that the general community understands that public policy was put in place decades ago that helped to exclude many members of the community from housing policy to capital policy, things like the GI Bill and the way that neighborhoods were drawn. Do you have any parting thoughts on the policies that even with some of the best intentions, we will assume sometimes have unintended consequences? How we can use, again, that dynamic to maybe just offer some context that this is not a new situation, that we didn't just stumble upon this, that, that it, it's intentional. And so we need intent in order to move forward. Not to overly plug, but I did write a book about cities and businesses of color, a guide to economic growth for living cities. In that, we talk about the challenges that have been created. But I think you hit on the main point, which is that if government and public policy, whether it's state, local, or federal, can be used to create these barriers to economic participation, they should also be the drivers of of fixing those challenges and that those challenges don't happen overnight. There are some principles that I outlined, though, that I think would be great parting thoughts. And these are principles where really, how do you secure economic inclusion? Number one, you have to acknowledge history discriminations and systems that have historically kept certain groups from participating in economic development. And so one of those things is I think it's important for public policy leaders and important for business and civic leaders to understand the history of what's happened from a policy perspective in their community that has kept certain people out. And to move forward, you can't just move forward and go to women or go to people of color or go to veterans or go to disabled folks and say, how do we move forward? Well, I want to do X, Y, and Z because that that, that fails to acknowledge that there's a lack of trust there. And that lack of trust is well-founded and established on some things. So the first thing is you've got to acknowledge that history, figure out, okay, and actually try to make amends and recognize that trust is earned and that it might not have been earned in the past. The second principle, you've got to act now while investing in the long term. And so many times, many communities love to do disparity studies to show how things aren't working. And you already know the problem. So the disparity studies, in many cases, those are just a way to to buy time to say that you're doing something. And by the time the disparity study is done, there's a different mayor in place. And then there's a whole nother approach. So you got to act now. And so figure out what problem that you want to solve and actually be intentional about solving that problem right off the back. So that picks me to the third one, that strategies need to be specific and targeted versus generic and global. In many cases, communities will just throw money at a problem. Oh, we've got an issue with women entrepreneurs. Let's get a money pot and throw a bunch of money at it. 
that never, ever works. Strategies have to be specific and they have to be global. Number four, equitable growth is better for everyone. And so this idea that there's a limited pot keeps those that have power or have influence from actually inviting others into the room. And the reality is that economic growth actually creates more opportunities for bigger companies, for established companies, for the majority population, as well as for women and people of color. Uh, build more competitive communities. At the end of the day, the approach to how you drive this economic transformation should be around how do you make these communities actually compete on the face of it because they just have something to offer that's better and and, and not solely because there's some sort of subsidy. Inclusion will bolster innovation. Women have different challenges than men. And so more women innovators, more women in entrepreneurship are going to come up with different solutions and that's better for everybody. Use the data-driven approach. That's the seven principle. A lot of times folks have opinions, but it's based on their limited view. So find out the information, desegregate the data so that you can actually make decisions based on data. And then the last is that local governments are ideal ecosystem builders. you got to build an ecosystem that works. You have to be intentional about saying, what are the supports and services and things that women entrepreneurs need? And how do we actually do that? And, and while there's an important role for the private sector and a very important role for the nonprofit sector, the government really has a bully pulpit and the policy leverage to actually accelerate that change. And, and they should. I'm going to overly plug all of the principles and your book because I think that it's refreshing and it is a way that we as a community and as leaders in this space need to be thinking about these things. We're going to end on the opportunity for abundance in our economic development. So it's not just Atlanta. Culture drives economic development and prosperity on both a national and a local level. Our next conversation builds on the three C's trifecta, civic organizations, corporate engagement, and culture as a means to drive success in entrepreneurship. Atlanta Influences Everything represents a collective of our most prolific entrepreneurs in the A. They are Bane Joyner, culture curator and co-founder of AIE, where he's managed and consulted a variety of lifestyle brands and designed meaningful programs for clients like Sprite, Nike, Champion, Truth.com, Jack Daniels, Nissan, the Atlanta Jazz Festival, and TEDx. Next up, we have Tori Edwards. From Dinner with Friends, which is equal parts civic platform and content production, to AIE, Tori has gone from wanting to become a part of the conversation to actually creating that conversation. And then there's Ian, Ian Ford, the chief creative officer for AIE, who finds unique ways to create and build in the marketing and technology industries. Being birthed in Brooklyn has allowed Ford to nurture his independence, but coming of age in Atlanta brought out the entrepreneurial spirit that turned his weaknesses into his strengths. Atlanta Influences Everything is a creative consultancy focused on combining civic, corporate, and cultural understanding to harness the influence of Atlanta's culture to do good and connect communities. So let's dive into the AIE origin story. I think that what we'll learn is that while Atlanta is great, we can also do a better job of leveraging the creative economy to drive policy initiatives. Bame, Ian, Tori, I'd like for you guys to tell me in your words, your origin story, how you became co-founders together and how you came upon this phrase, which I think now is a mega brand, Atlanta influences everything. Back in 2015, Dame and I had heard about Nike releasing an exclusive colorway of their Bo Jackson trainer, and it was to celebrate the 96 Olympics. And we had a contact at Nike, and we were excited because we had just started this marketing agency. We were going to reach out to Nike and pitch to them this event to celebrate the release of the sneaker. We had a contact at Nike that was going to put us in touch with the right people. And then when we reached out to him, he went to his bosses and came back to us and said, Nike's not going to invest any marketing dollars into the market because they don't see Atlanta as a big enough market. Dame, who's known for his rants, was ranting to me about this situation. And during the rant, 
He said Atlanta influences everything. Nike doesn't know Atlanta influences everything. And I caught it, designed some early mock-ups of the t-shirt, ran it by like friends and family until we landed on the signature design that we have right now. Put out the shirts, had some moderate early success. So the brand started out as a sub-project for an agency that we were trying to build at the time. So we didn't really put as much time and effort into really developing it. It was just a project. And then around 2017, 2018, Tori came around and Tori had a vision for the brand and he lit a fire under it. Fast forward to where we are now. That's the gist of it. There's some other small caveats with the story. Back at that time, 2015, 2016, we were also talking with the Office of Film and Television and they had tasked us with finding a slogan for Atlanta that was kind of like made in New York or keep Portland weird. They weren't happy with the current slogan. And so when we came up with Atlanta Influences Everything, we were like, should we give this to film and television or should we keep this for ourselves? And we were like, let's keep this for ourselves. You guys feel like this is a movement now because it does feel much bigger than a simple slogan. I'll wear my shirt and people will stop me in the street. Or I've got friends I've known for some years now and I'll order, oh man, I got to get one of those shirts. And it feels like it's taken on a life of its own. Are you all feeling that? Or do you feel like you've got your arms around it and what you want it to do for yourselves as businessmen and entrepreneurs and for the city? I always saw it as a movement. I never really looked at it as just a slogan. Me personally, I don't know what the guys would say, but I always looked at it with that in mind. But to Ian's earlier point, I don't think any of us saw it, this iteration of it. But I always thought it was a thing that encompassed so many things. I didn't see it as just a slogan. Thought it was more like a call to action, a rally and cry. In my opinion, I thought it was something that everybody who felt that or felt it was true took whatever they had to offer to lend it to amplifying that idea. I want to pull Ian back into the conversation because I, there was something that I was reading and Babe and I talked about this for some years, just the creative economy in Atlanta's cultural forces, not only in music, but now in music, film, TV, and then our civic culture. I'm curious what you guys would like to see more of in this city. Even Babe, you were talking about reading Fast Company, on Marta, how would you like to see us leverage the creative economy and our cultural forces a bit more and see more innovation and entrepreneurship, more teams like yourself that are out here figuring out solutions, liaising with the city, with the corporate, with the culture and creating impact where everybody wants to be a part of it? Going back to the origins of the brand and me identifying fame as a community organizer. We were hoping to really identify the creative economy and really just help establish it in the city. We felt like it was loosely established, but the city was definitely reaping the benefits from all the creativity that comes out of Atlanta. And so we just were like, we need to shine some more light on the creative economy. But the overall goal is just to eliminate the silos. We want to get everybody working together. That's the whole point of the three C's, the uh, culture, the civic, and the corporate. We feel like when there's a problem with one of the C's, the other two C's can help solve that problem. So if someone comes to us with a corporate problem, we'll ask them, have they considered doing this with the civic side or the community? And have they considered this on the creative and cultural side? There's a problem with the culture. We'll try to connect them with the corporate or the civic side and just vice versa with the civic side. So we hope to use the three C's to just eliminate silos and help really establish the creative economy. And also one of the key words there is economy, which does refer to the exchange of money. So we're looking to pay people. We try to pay everybody for everything that we do. We just did a one day conference and we made sure everybody was paid for their services. We're all really connected and we probably could call in a lot of favors, but we purposely choose not to do that. We want to make sure that there's money flowing through the city, money flowing through the economy. We try to create budgets that make sure that everybody eats because when there's more money flowing, there's more money spending and that overall creates a better society. So we really just want to establish 
the economy side of the creative economy, but just get rid of the silos and really just solidify who's involved in the creative economy. And I'm going to be chanting and praying and meditating all the things that you do on breaking down the silos. That's something that's here. And I hate to see it, but love to see teams like yours in Atlanta influences everything. I think because as Tori was saying, it promotes community and it wants you to put a hand in and as opposed to taking a hand out. I actually think you guys are well on, on your way. I feel like you guys have mobilized or created a coalition that we haven't seen before. I, actually, there, there are echoes of it, which I think is in the DNA of the city. I don't know if you guys have read this book from, I think it's from Sweet Auburn to Peachtree and it chronicles John Wesley Dobbs and Ivan Allen and how their families develop side by side, but John Wesley Dobbs being the grandfather, uh, Mayor Jackson. But it, it talks about in the 1930s and 40s, how he created a coalition of Black voters. And that's how we got streetlights in Sweet Auburn and things like that. And I feel like you guys are in that space where you have this coalition that no one could pull together. And that's going to lead to that economic impact because now you guys just have a leverage. I hope I'm right about that. I think I am. Um, you know, there's some fantastic women entrepreneurs that have called Atlanta home that come from Atlanta. I'll shout out a few of their names, the people like Pinky Cole and Sarah Blakely, Jasmine Crow, Joel Burke Solomon, Farrah Allen, Christina Smith, Newton, Jazz Dolivant, Jamie Moten, Melanie Rose. We've got things like the Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative. We have Walker's Legacy. We have Launchpad 2X. And I would love for all three of you to answer this. What would you say to women that are coming to Atlanta, looking at Atlanta to build, grow, scale their businesses as entrepreneurs yourself? Key Hallman, Dr. Key Hallman, her thing is the village, but it's the ideology of her why. And, you know, as a man, I think the ratio is still with eight to one female to male, whatever. It's a large number. So it's like a, if you want to look at it on some like Amazon, Wonder Woman, Amazon, village, tribe, you got a lot of them. You just named, and that ain't even, you know what I'm saying? But it's levels to this. And so overall, it is a each one teach one. You know, I don't want to do the mansplaining of a woman is a nurturer. You know what I'm saying? But don't do it. The dude don't know you. If you if there's no already previous relationship with men, you got to just be invited in sometime. And it stalls progress. In my life, it has anyway. And it's Atlanta's a place where Rohit will tell you it is really run by women when you really look at all levels where the power base sits and the ability to shift power. And so it's just, it's, I hate to say sisterhood, but that's what I've seen and what I've witnessed. And I wouldn't be here. The male mentorship, it's really been women of how I got in the game and how I got here. So if that's who helped me, especially up until a certain point, it was just women. Then there has to be more of that. That's just what I see of Atlanta. And most of those women you name are not from here. So that would also tell me if you were looking to move here, most of the women on that list aren't from here. The other side of that is we would like to build up a locally born contingent to mix and mingle and play. But yeah, yeah, that's what I see. Atlanta, back to the earlier point, Atlanta needs people who are going to put a hand in and help move this thing along, break down these silos and just elevate the conversation of who we are. And I think women just if I was saying this anywhere else, I definitely would be using some profanity, but I'm not going to do it. Women get it done at the end of the day. <laughs> we do. The women going to get it done. It's like men have this uh, bravado and strength about them, but not much strategy or brains. I won't say we're stupid. It's just women are just smarter. They're just born to move the needle. They do it. And AIE as a brand, I think we've done more collaborating with women and women creators than most of our outside collaborations have been with women from people who are transient and not really so much people who are natives, women in general that come to Atlanta. And I think Atlanta is the type of place we just met a couple. I don't know if it's the first, the world's first or the first black owned autonomous grocery store called Nourish and, Nourish and Bloom. And just having a conversation with husband and wife, they were explaining how they came from New York and were able to open this store. And it's, a, it's beautiful. You should go check it out. 
But the concept is really smart too. But they said what they experienced in Atlanta was, it was like the city just put their arms around them, embraced them, and just wanted to see that success. Like people came from other places, other cities, drove hours just to see it. So impressed with it, the idea. And I think for any woman who is an entrepreneur and has a dream, I really believe Atlanta has the resources and it, the design and how, the model of Atlanta is a hub. So it's built for transients to come. If you have a plan, you have a dream and you got enough confidence in yourself, it can give you the resources and provide the resources for success. And I really think nobody does that like women. If you're here, go ahead, girl, get it. It's open. If you're not here and you're coming, come on. When you get here, you got your plan. We're with you. Amen to that. It seems you just can't have one without the other, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship. Atlanta Influences Everything is invoked by policymakers, celebrities, and corporate leaders. And it's because the three C's work in lockstep for that AIE brand. I wonder if we can harness these three C's for entrepreneurship to the broader community. I'll tell you, we do love the advice they gave to women. Don't second guess your brilliance. The world needs more of it. And now, on to the main event. Dr. Eloisa Clementich, President and CEO of Invest Atlanta. As a nationally recognized policy leader, her heart is rooted in equity as a driver for economic development. Since being named President and CEO of Invest Atlanta, the agency has had many notable accomplishments under Dr. Clementich's leadership. She's commissioned Atlanta's first economic development strategy, driven by economic mobility, fostered an internal culture focused on equity, and led to the integration of Atlanta's Workforce Development Agency, as well as the Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative programs into Invest Atlanta, creating a more comprehensive economic development solution for the city. The results speak for themselves. 1,925 small businesses and entrepreneurs served in 2022, close to 11,000 jobs created in 2022, 708.5 million in capital investments committed in 2022, and wait for it, 2.4 billion in economic output through Invest Atlanta in 2022. So with those stats, it's no surprise that she's a recipient of a number of accolades and awards. Dr. Clementich is recipient of the 2020 Diamond Award, the 2019 Women Who Mean Business Award, and the 2018 Henry Hill Robinson Award, ACBR, Walker's Legacy Women in Economic Development Award, and the National Association of Minority Contractors, Georgia Chapter Public Sector Award. Dr. Clementich is a graduate of Leadership Atlanta and a participant of the Atlanta Regional Commission's Regional Leadership Initiative. She's been featured in Delta Skies Magazine, Faces of Atlanta Business, and the Atlanta Business Chronicles People to Watch. Dr. Clementich is the brain trust behind the Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative and Atlanta's leadership in economic development. I'm so excited for this conversation with Dr. Clementich. Amongst the topics we discuss, it's the idea that incremental change actually opens up opportunity for real change and that diversity, equity, and inclusion drives economic development. It's this diversity that's been one of the foundational reasons Atlanta proves resilient in these really dynamic and changing economic times. And also, importantly, that disruption or friction can be good for policy. In fact, disruption and friction through entrepreneurship is critical to the process for capturing innovative solutions. Dr. Clementich, I do know that your doctoral work was focused on this intersection between policy and innovation. And I'm hoping you can tell us about how you came to this work and how you see it being applied to economic development for the city of Atlanta. So taking me back to my doctoral work, I really wanted to explore this concept of innovation and more so looked a lot at incremental innovation in terms of how do we build upon the great ideas of individuals, 
that have come before us and going to create new or more improved, more efficient products. And here, what I noticed was there is an opportunity for us to be able to think through innovation and how does it collide with policy and what things can we do to help stimulate innovation. At the time, I was doing a lot of work in the state of California. There was a lot of networks around innovation and entrepreneurship there. And so really was the bridge between looking at the theoretical piece of this incremental innovation and then looking at the policies that were in California and really seeing California in many areas being at the forefront of policy. And so what my work really started to look at was, okay, understand the concept of innovation, but then look to California and its success and where were these lessons learned or where did they therefore also collide? And I specifically was looking at energy efficiency of refrigerators, maybe not so sexy perhaps, but the legislature wanted to think through what could they do to not only create an energy efficient refrigerator, but not only was that important in terms of innovation, but their thought was energy. Energy isn't shoot in California as in many states. And so how do you still have a nice big refrigerator, which is what people wanted, customer side, but also be very respectful in terms of energy efficiency and energy efficiency needs in the state. And so when the legislature started to put in these guidelines and said, if you want to sell a refrigerator in California, you have to meet these energy standards. Well, when they first came out with that, people were upset. You had a whole bunch of producers that said, you'll never make it. You're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to reach these levels of energy efficiency, which what they were saying was people are now demanding bigger refrigerators. Bigger refrigerators require more energy. And California was saying, we love refrigerators, but they need to ensure that they're meeting these energy standards. Well, the legislation passed. The production or manufacturing had five years or six years, I'd have to go back and exact look, to be able to produce products that could meet this energy efficiency standard that was going to be implemented and taking place. I went back and looked and there was a whole bunch of innovations that happened from the material that was used to keep the refrigerators closed to the way the refrigerator opened to nuts and bolts, I was astounded, really took that refrigerator and said, okay, where do we save from one or two points or what do we do to move a needle? And literally looked at every aspect of the refrigerator. And lo and behold, they met the energy efficiency guidelines and they met consumer demand, which was for bigger refrigerators. And so that really opened up for me this opportunity of about how we look at innovation and entrepreneurship here in Atlanta and how we look at it in every place that I've ever worked as a way to drive a certain outcome or to make yourself competitive. Because what is clear to me is if you are not continuously innovating your policies, your processes, even you as a city, then you will fall behind and quickly become obsolete. And so I think that is very important in every aspect that we use innovation challenge as a way to ensure that we're providing our constituencies, whatever they need in terms of being successful in a city. I was circling the phrase incremental because I think that people want things to happen very quickly. That's the type of environment that we live in. Government and policy is a step-by-step process. You do have to take it in increments to drive a larger outcome. And I don't know that I've heard incremental innovation as a phrase, but I can appreciate that quite a bit. When we look at short-term deliverables and wins and then long-term ones, it makes me think about the strategy we've been trying to do here at Invest Atlanta specifically when it comes to issues around leveraging innovation and seeing short-term success in that ecosystem. And then how does it feed into more of our long term, which is the health of our businesses and our Fortune 500s? And so for me, I think 
when we look at a business's life cycle, we see that there are ebbs and flows between what is growth, maturity, and sometimes death. So if you think of a company and its growth, its maturity, and then some companies have died, right? So you think of some of our big ones that have gone through a death cycle, and I'm thinking of particular Kodak, and now are thinking of how do they reinvent themselves to continue on with maturity. So I think there's creative ways you could have short-term wins. And specifically, I'm thinking some of your innovative, smaller companies, and then get them in the right ecosystem, help them get them access because what they need, I've heard this before, oftentimes we need money, we need investment. Yes, either you get a loan or someone invests in your company, it still is at a cost, right? It's either a portion of your company or now you're carrying this level of debt. But if you could get a customer, then I think that is a way for you to grow your startup and your small business. So how do you foster that innovation in that small startup or that startup that grows and leverage it for an opportunity with your Fortune 500s? And we need to inject that innovation. I see it as this injection into the Fortune 500 to be able to ensure that you're not having a Fortune 500 that is now on the decline, but rather it's finding ways to continually reinvent itself and have an upward trajectory. And I think that merger is one of the ways that you could address not only the short term, but also the long term is an opportunity for us to find these synergies where you've created win-wins for everyone. Because I think what's exciting here in Atlanta is we have the third largest Fortune 500 concentration in the nation. And so we're very proud of that. It's very diversified, which is great in terms of our clusters. But we want to ensure that we continue to have that sort of presence. But we're also growing some of our startups. So there's a unique opportunity here for us to do both. And what we're looking for now is how do we then leverage in policies. You've got the innovation and the startup, you've got the Fortune 500. How do we inject policy to serve as that layer to support the community? Because the reality is startups don't really touch government that often in the sense of you pretty much pay your small business license fee. Uh, Maybe there's some zoning for a facility if you so have but pretty much the strategies of your business are your own and it's not involving government. So we've been looking at unique strategies in terms of policy where we're injecting ourselves in the process to provide value. And one of the things that we've said, or one of my colleagues has said, Rod said, was what is your value proposition in the near term? And I think if you're able to create this network or this ecosystem for entrepreneurs, an ecosystem for the Fortune 500s, and then you tying it together through a policy, I think that is unique. And let me give you an example. We have a demonstration project here in the city. And if you think about it, there are oftentimes startups that will have to do a proof of concept phase, right? Let's say your product needs access to where people gather. So maybe a park, police station, a fire station, a building, a waterway. Whatever it is that you need, why can't you test that product in the city and use city resources to test that product? Because if you're able to prove out the concept of your project and create the MVP, you then take that to the Fortune 500. And now we've served as a bridge to get you there. So how does we, the policymakers, serve as more bridges to more businesses on the other side? And so I love the concept of a bridge. We're going to help entrepreneurs on one and get to the other. And maybe it's my policy in the middle that's going to help you get there. The other one we try to do is we thought about, again, back to this question of how often does a startup touch the government? We started to ask, okay, if I'm a startup in a certain NAICS code, these are the high growth NAICS codes, maybe we don't charge you a small business license fee. Now I got it. Maybe it's not the million dollars, but if you're a startup that receives no revenue or very little revenue, it's about giving it forward, right? It's about supporting you when you started. 
And I think sending that message, we as a city believe in you startups so much. So we're saying, okay, you do not have to pay your license fee. As long as you don't make a million dollars or more, you don't have to pay for the first three years. We figured after a million dollars, you could pretty much pay your small business license fee. But the whole point was, how do we walk along this path with you? How do you show that this is important to the city? It is important to our government to provide, to have these opportunities for startups. And let me close with this, Monica, and then I'll pass it over. One of the key things that we've seen here in Atlanta, and the one thing that my commitment personally has been, is we are on top of many lists, the best airport, the busiest airport in the world, the best place to do business. And we love being number one, don't get me wrong. But that one list you never want to be number one on is income inequality. And we continue at get the Atlanta region to be a one and two. And so I personally have a mandate that I don't want to walk away until we're on the bottom of that list. And the only way we can do that is really with this concerted effort about equity. And we believe equity has to be a shared responsibility amongst all of us together. And we have to approach it in an innovative way. We've got to think about things differently and how we deliver. And so really, I think the innovation piece, the entrepreneurship is critical to the goal of where we want to be because entrepreneurship is a way to create wealth. And so we will continue to push that as a way to provide resources to individuals that come from typical communities that aren't receiving the benefits that some of the other parts of the city are. And so I think this is our opportunity to grow together, to leverage innovation, to not only drive our equity agenda, but also to drive this opportunity of leveraging the relationship between innovation and small business to drive the growth of our city. I love all of that, Eloisa. I feel like you've touched on something really critical around being the bridge between innovation and policy is invested out of the agency because we do need those bridges to connect the dots, right? I think that you touched on something really important on how women are a part of the value proposition for Atlanta's economic development, specifically because we're speaking to you from the Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative. I think not only for the Atlanta ecosystem, but I believe that for the nation, women are critical to the innovation entrepreneurship effort and really should be taking a front row seat on this drive to see the growth in our cities. Not only do we understand what it is to care for a family, and I'm not saying men don't, but we carry a uniqueness, I think, as being a woman and a sensitivity, understanding your needs and your family being empathetic to understand the needs of another. And then how do we care for our children? And I don't mean children, just natural children. It is this comprehensive, very motherly feeling of I have to or try to care for those that need it the most. There's something very specific to women that I believe that's real and exists? And how do we leverage that? And it brings a uniqueness to how women do business, about how women negotiate, about how women participate in the political environment. Typically, we are the ones to try to find a middle ground. Let's find a solution where we create a win-win for everyone or both or all as many are really having the best benefit to the opportunity for growth. And so I think, again, women need to be at the forefront of these conversations. We bring unique perspective to the conversation in all of these areas. When we look at the value proposition and understanding our assets and our culture, I am firmly of the belief that innovation is in the DNA of Atlanta. Why do I say that? Because from the time of the civil rights, it was innovative. The thoughts, the tactics, the strategies that were led by Martin Luther King and individuals all around him that I've had the honor to talk to their children, many of them, is 
that is innovation. That is thinking outside of the box fundamentally. And so whether you're going to innovate in societal policy or in your business or in your thought process, I believe that you have that fundamental experience here in Atlanta. It's who Atlanta is and the uniqueness of Atlanta and that value proposition. I was so impressed when I first came to Atlanta about 11 and a half years ago is this opportunity to walk in a room full of African-American individuals who had this great ideas and promise. I had been in other rooms. I had been in DC. I had been in California. I had been international. I had been in Europe. Never seen what Atlanta has. That uniqueness. If you are an African and you want to do that, you got to be in Atlanta. Like that is that network. I can't explain it to you, but it's real. It's here. It's this sense of community where we're all rooting for your success. And I see it embracing to all minorities that have really the shared impact of being disinvested in for years. And so I think the concentration of the civil rights movements, the concentration of the AUC center schools, it's a privilege that they are in. Atlanta, that they're graduating so many engineers and professionals at that level, that it's an exciting place to be. And the energy, the vibe, is it's real. You taste it when you get here. You see it, you feel it, and you're part of something larger. And I think it's that excitement that are bringing more people to Atlanta. And that is why Atlanta's on the map. That is why Atlanta will continue to grow. And that's why Atlanta will be the place where, you know, I always watch that U-Haul statistic about where is there one more <laughs> one-way trip in the nation? And it's Atlanta that we continue to rank number one and number two in terms of number of one-way trips. That means people are leaving where they were and coming here and staying because they I, that's I had never heard that one. I'd never heard about the U-Haul stat. I think that's a really good one. <laughs> That one's awesome. And and that's all you got to do is to create that community. You have to be sticky. People got to feel like they come in, they land somewhere and they're part of something really cool and unique. And that's what you're finding here in Atlanta. We loved all of this. Stay above the fray. Act on your expertise and lived experiences as women. There's gold in those experiences. And also for our audience and listeners, it's important, really important to note, having diverse people at the table, people that represent your unique culture and environment, those things are critical for success. It's why Atlanta is the perfect place for women-led startups and entrepreneurs. Thank you for listening to Why Atlanta podcast sponsored and produced by the Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative of Atlanta. The Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative is a 15-month incubator program funded by the City of Atlanta. We are the only municipally funded program of our kind in the nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of Why Atlanta. Atlanta is produced by Pixel Recess at pixelrecess.com.